Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in central London in Harley Street. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Eleanor, who is a general practitioner and who has a very interesting, uh, fascinating, gripping, um, uh, informative and slightly frightening or very frightening story to tell about a series of incidents that have occurred to her recently. And some people might refer to this as her experience of being stalked or being the victim of, a, of stalking or, or harassment. But you, you make your own mind up as you hear her very interesting story. So Eleanor, this kind of begins back in around uh, 2007. You're a general practitioner and there's a particular patient who we shall refer to by the initials RK that you see fairly regularly. Uh, he goes away abroad to a, to a um, holiday home and it comes back every few months. Um, and then something happens in terms of some new symptoms he develops. Tell us a bit about what happens. Yes, yeah, so uh, I knew RK very well. Um, I'd met him on a large number of occasions and he came in one day um, saying that he'd had some new symptoms, which by the time I saw him in my consultation had resolved. So um, I checked him over, reassured him that all seemed fine um, and wished him a good holiday and also tried to sort of make him feel that actually considering the medical issues that he had, he was doing extremely well and I was very happy with his progress um, and that she should go and have a good holiday, relax and I would see him when he got back as usual. Um, so he went away for two to three months um, and on his return, the practice received a complaint letter from RK stating that I'd made him feel that he, I had far more important patients um, to worry about and that he was wasting my time and also that I'd sworn at him in the consultation. So um, what happened next in terms of how this complaint was processed? Um, so what we do is uh, the patient was contacted by the practice manager and asked to come in and have a chat, both with me and one of the partners from the practice, just to try and work out what he'd felt I said. Was there a misunderstanding? What was sort of going on? So we arranged for him to come in um, and the three of us sat down and we went through um, his concerns. Obviously, I explained quite clearly that that was not what the what I'd said or certainly wasn't the intention behind what I'd said um, and reassured him that actually I was trying to make him feel better about things and um, so that he wouldn't worry when he went on holiday. Um, and also I um, definitely denied the fact that I had sworn at him. I never swear at people generally, let alone um, in my consultation room. Um, he seems to have a, a memory of this, um, but I, I reputed it and said it was it was not the case. Um, but anyway, it was all very civilised. It was all very calm. And um, he seemed to accept my explanation. And of course, I apologised for any distress that I had unknowingly caused. Um, and at the end of it, the partner who was in with me said, how do you wish to progress to RK? And he said that he did actually want to carry on seeing me as his doctor. Uh, we felt really that the, probably the trust had broken down on both sides a little bit. When a complaint comes in, you really feel that the doctor-patient relationship is tainted. And um, for his sake and my sake, um, that we were able to carry on looking after him correctly, he needed to carry on seeing a different GP. So um, he wasn't particularly happy about that, but he did accept it. And um, from then on, he carried on seeing a different GP in the practice. Not long after that, he sent me a card um, apologising actually for upsetting me. Uh, same as I was a very kind and forgiving person. Um, and as far as I was concerned, that was the end of that. But apparently when he was consulting with the other doctor now, he made some comments about how this experience continued to linger with him. Yes, he said he was getting sort of flashbacks and he couldn't get a picture of me and him in my consultation room out of his mind. Um, me saying these things that he, he alleged I said. 
um, that it was keeping him awake at night, that it was bothering him, he couldn't get it out of his mind. Um, and he was offered some help or some counselling to try and work out where this was going, um, but declined. So this is in the autumn of 2007. Then in February 2008, some, uh, a bouquet of flowers arrives for you. Yes, I was just about to go on maternity leave. He knew I was going to go on maternity leave because at the, the meeting with the partner after the complaint, I was pregnant at that time. And it was quite obvious that at some point I was going to be finishing work. Um, and a few days before I did finish, a bouquet of flowers arrived. It was actually the day after Valentine's Day, um, 24 red roses um, and a card just wishing me all the very best. Um, and that arrived at the surgery was slightly inappropriate, I felt at the time, um, because obviously we'd had this issue and he hadn't seen me for quite a number of months. Um, So I just distributed the flowers into the practice and gave the card to the practice manager. But I thought it was also signed um, in a slightly strange way. Yes, it was signed Amiga. Um, All the cards that he sent me were signed Amiga, which is a Spanish for friend. Right, okay. So um, you returned to work in October 2008 and you found a card on the windscreen of your car. Tell us yes. a bit about that. Yes, it was a short period after I got back to work um, and I went out to the car park one day and there was a card underneath the windscreen wiper um, and it said in it, um, nice to have you back, looking great. And again, it was signed Amiga. So I took it into the practice manager and gave it to them and they called RK into the surgery and explained to him that really it was inappropriate. One, I wasn't his doctor anymore. And two, um, it was inappropriate to be making, giving cards, making personal comments uh, about somebody at the surgery and that if he continued to act in this way, um, that he would be asked to leave the practice list. Now, at this moment, although things are a little bit strange, um, this is not beyond the bounds so far, maybe of many general practitioners' experience. But now things take a turn definitely for the different. And there's two incidents of vandalism to your consultation room. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. So... um... Nobody was ever charged with the vandalism, but not long after um, RK was brought in and and asked not to approach me anymore, um, my consultation was vandalised. So it was uh, during the night, um, the windows were broken into, um, somebody came in and cut the cords to the computer, they smashed up the television, they slashed the chair, um, books and things were thrown around, nothing was stolen. And considering there's quite a lot of expensive equipment in consultation rooms in the surgery, um, nothing was taken. It was just all destroyed. Um, And that happened twice, a a couple of weeks apart. And my consultation room was the only one that was targeted. There was no damage to anywhere else in the surgery. I'm a little bit puzzled that your surgery is so easy to break into. Yes. um, And it had bars on the window. And I... Yes, and no evidence was found of who t- who did it. Um, RK had a business as a TV aerial installer, so he drove a white van full of lots of things that builders and TV aerial installers use, ladders and all that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. We don't know that it was him, obviously. Um, nobody was ever charged with it, but in light of what happened following that, there's a high suspicion that it was him. I don't know how he broke in. But your surgery then installed CCTV and also your car was keyed. It was scratched with a key. Yes. uh, On the road outside the surgery, I went out to the car one day and there was a big kiss or an X on the bonnet. And it had been keyed all the way down the side of the car. It was in a line of cars parked against the curb and uh, mine was the only one that was affected. And then a little bit later on, your car was vandalised again. There was glue Put in, put in on it. Yes, so the next incident was that um, I went out one evening, um, it was dark, 
because it was winter time and I put my hand on the handle of the door and it was covered in glue. And then I found that the whole car was being covered in glue. Um, and so obviously I couldn't drive it and because I couldn't actually get in the door. And um, so we had to get a garage to sort it out and get all the glue off. Um, and then just following that, there was another incident where some building foam was inserted into the exhaust. So looking at the CCTV of both those instances, the first one with the glue, a white van drove into the car park, somebody in a hoodie got out of it, went up to my car and covered it in glue. The second one, white van drove into the car park, somebody got out of it. We've actually got CCTV footage of a person going behind the car, crouching down. You can't see what they're doing. And then he came back away from the car, looked up at the CCTV camera and smiled. And that um, was our K. We couldn't see that it was on the previous incident, but it was clear that it was him by his face on the second. But also, I think your practice manager comes out the back door and sees his van leaving um, during one of these incidents. Or That's similar right. Incidents. Yes, with the building foam. Um, she happened to be looking outside the back door and saw his white van leaving um, and called the police. And they managed to arrest him not far from the surgery. But now another thing that happens, and there's a pattern to this, as, as people will, will discover as the story evolves, um, the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, charge him, but the charge isn't for what you might expect it to be. T tell us a bit about that. Yes, well, obviously we hoped that there would, the criminal damage to my car would be taken into consideration, but they didn't seem to feel that the evidence was strong enough to be able to definitely convict him. Um, we did have the CCTV of his face and um, there were several people apart from me in the practice that could verify it was definitely him. Um, but they decided instead, I suppose because it was easier, I'm not really sure. And I did get a letter from them explaining that they couldn't take everything to court that was that happened, et cetera, et cetera, that they were going to charge him with harassment. And that basically covered the cards and the flowers. And that was it. So what happened then? He, he got charged for this. What, so what happened? Yes, he went to magistrate's court and he had a magistrate's restraining order, which said that he was not allowed to make indirect or direct contact with me that caused anxiety, extreme anxiety or distress. How did you feel about this? Well, it's the first time I'd ever experienced a restraining order and I was quite pleased that I had a restraining order. I mean, I was cross that the criminal damage hadn't been taken into consideration, but at least we had some sort of a result and I assumed, as most people do, um, that a logical person or a reasonable person would therefore feel that they'd, they'd felt the weight of the law. Um, they'd been told that they weren't allowed to do something, that there would be consequences if they did, and that they would make him stop. But uh, from January 2009 onwards, um, there's, there's lots of sightings of him being quite near the surgery. T tell us a bit about that. Yes, um, it was over a period of a, a couple of months, really. Um, we started noticing that when I drove into surgery in the morning, he would always be walking the same route along the road that I would drive into. So I would see him at the same point every morning. Um, then he started sitting in his van in the supermarket car park that is directly opposite the surgery. And he would sit there for hours and hours just watching, had a good view of the front of the surgery and also the car park to see me coming and going. He would never sit there ever. And he was never seen around the surgery on the days that I didn't work. Um, there were occasions where I'd go out on visits. He'd drive out of the car park and follow me. And also he would park in laybys on my way home on a dual carriageway and as soon as I went past he would again pull out and follow me. Um, we talked to the police about it, we informed them but really the restraining order was so woolly the words indirect or direct contact you could class that as anything nobody actually really knew what that meant in reality 
And so um, the, the police at that point didn't feel that there was enough evidence to be able to take this to the CPS and to progress it. So what the surgery and I did, we took it upon ourselves to try and gather evidence. Uh, we had a logbook. Um, all the receptionists um, who sat at the front of windows of the surgery would log every time that they saw him appear, what he was doing, patterns of behaviour, what sort of time of day it would happen, just to try and get enough evidence to be able to prove a pattern of behaviour that was abnormal. So he would walk up and down and up and down and round and round the surgery, or he'd sit in his van outside and he'd follow. Um, and we had ended up with over 100 logs um, over the period probably of about four to six weeks. My husband also arrived home one day to find a man standing outside the house on the opposite side of the road watching. He'd not met RK before, so he didn't actually know what RK looked like. So he rang me up and he said, there's this man standing there and this is what he looks like. It was a very accurate description. So I said, yes, that's him. Um, my husband had just picked up my baby daughter from nursery. So they did get in the car and try and find where he'd gone. But obviously, when you've got a small child in the car, you can't really approach somebody or confront them, even if you wanted to, or even if it would be a sensible idea, which it wouldn't have been. Um, and we did find on that day when he went into the house that there were a lot of leaflets that had been posted through our front door. And eventually they were fingerprinted and found to be RK. So we put all this evidence together. Eventually he was seen outside the surgery with a camera taking photographs. And at that point, the police felt it was appropriate to arrest him. So he was arrested and there were a lot of pictures of you found on his camera and computer. Yes, um, lots and lots of pictures that obviously I had never known he was taking. And also um, many, many, in fact, over a thousand, it was told to me, um, Google searches for information about me on my name and anything to do with me. Um, so then what happens to him in terms of... Um criminal justice so then again he was arrested um he was kept in custody for a large period of time and then we went to court um crown court this time and he was given a further restraining order he was tagged for a period of time and had a curfew and he had a restraining order that didn't allow him into the immediate vicinity of my workplace or my home okay and and then what happened in terms of the tag because the tag he got tagged and then the tag came off Yes, the tag came off. The day the tag came off, I drove out of the drive in the evening to go out and see some friends and a van with the number plate of his van drove past my drive as I was driving out. So I came in, back in immediately because he was breaching his restraining order. He wasn't allowed to drive down our road, um, informed the police. And this time the CPS did take it on. So we went to court again um, to say that he was breaching his restraining order. Unfortunately, it was my word against his. There was no strong evidence one way or the other. Um, his wife and his daughter stood in court and gave alibis, although him, his wife and his daughter all gave three different stories of what he was doing that night. But there was not enough um, definite evidence, unfortunately, to prove that he was there. So he was found not guilty. OK, then the period of time follows where there's multiple incidents of vandalism to the surgery. Yes, the CCTV cameras were covered in paint. Um, the locks were filled with glue. There was foul liquids poured through the letterbox. Um, many, many nights, it was always about sort of one or two o'clock in the morning, always uh, a man fitting his height description uh, wearing a hoodie so you could never see his face. So unfortunately, although there were many, many, many episodes and the surgery ended up paying thousands of pounds in repairs, uh, it was never proven to be him and it was never taken forward from their point of view.
But another thing that I find very puzzling, because this is a person who goes away on for regular periods of time abroad, because uh, they have a holiday home abroad. Whenever they're abroad, the, the incidents all stop. And then whenever he's back, according to you, the incidents restart. That doesn't seem to matter much to the police. No, I, I, I think I'm not even sure if it was the police. The police were aware. But the difficulty is, is, you know, they're, they're poorly resourced as well as everybody else. And you, you couldn't put a police person, a policeman sitting outside the surgery every night in case somebody happened to turn up. And we tried to get all sorts of things put in place. We tried to get cameras put on sort of lamp posts and various other things to try and catch him. But unfortunately, it was it was stopped at every turn. The police, who I have to say, were extremely good and they really persisted in trying to get a plan of action that would be able to get the evidence that they needed but they were not allowed to have the resources that they needed to do it. Okay now we get to 2012 um some recycling boxes are stolen from your drive. Tell us what a recy- what, what this is yes. and what was taken from them. And then there's some CCTV footage as well that's relevant. Yeah, so we had CCTV installed all the way around our house um, quite near the beginning of when all this started. So recycling boxes, two large green plastic crates, which we put in our recycling, and every two weeks they get p- picked up from the end of our drive, um, alternate weeks to the rubbish being collected, um, so in 2012, we'd gone on holiday. We went abroad with um, my four-year-old, my four-month-old and my parents and um, left the recycling boxes at the bottom of the drive where we would expect them to be picked up while we were away. Um, when we got back from our holiday, unfortunately, we'd been found out the day we were coming home that our house had burnt down in a fire. And we got back to basically very little house left, just the four walls we did notice the next day that there were no recycling boxes at the bottom of the drive. But to be honest with you, our house had burnt down. So it was the last thing that we were too worried about. Um, a few weeks later, when things were starting to be investigated and the story was progressing, we then looked at the CCTV cameras from around that period of time. And two days before the fire had happened, about one o'clock in the morning, a white van pulls up outside the house. Somebody in a hoodie gets out, picks up the recycling boxes, puts them in a van and then drives off. Sorry um, to ask um, what may seem dumb questions, but how come your CCTV cameras weren't destroyed by the fire? You said the whole house had been destroyed. No, the four walls were left. So downstairs was gutted. The back of the house had fallen down. Um, Upstairs was completely smoke damaged, but the four walls were left. And obviously the CCTV cameras are on the outside of the house. So they'd survived. Yeah. Um. What what happened in terms of uh, some kind of police investigation of this of this what could be described as an arson attack? Yes. Well, when we got back, the um, obviously we hadn't been here when the ha- the fire happened. Our next door neighbours had known about the um, stalking that had been happening, and they did inform the fire service at the time overnight that there was this going on. So the fire service did check to see if there was any obvious signs of arson. Um, when we met them sort of two days later, once we got back from our holiday, um, they said that there wasn't any evidence of arson at that time. And when we talked to the loss adjuster who comes from the insurance company, they felt that there was no reason to get forensic any, any forensic investigation. At the time, we were so shocked by the whole thing. Also, RK had been away for a few months prior to that, so that we'd had a couple of months of quietness, and I think that had calmed things down a little bit. 
Unfortunately, the police officer who had been in charge of things right from the start wasn't informed about the fire until three weeks afterwards. He's since said that if he'd known about it, he would have had forensics all over it at the time. But unfortunately, it never happened. The police weren't involved and there was no investi- any further investigation. Um, OK, I'm still finding this bit very difficult to get my head around. I, I would have thought that you would have contacted the police and pointed out the past history. <sighs> Yes. Sorry. No, 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 you're right. A terrible question. No, no, not at all. And you're right. And I think, I think we probably assumed that the police had been informed. It it was such a, it's such a traumatic thing to come back and find the house burnt down. At that point, all what RK had been doing was small, I suppose you call them small, yes, persistent, but small, non-violent, non-sort of threatening, I suppose, in a way. Um, when you look at them individually, when you look at the pattern of behaviour, it's threatening. But when you look at actually what he was doing, it didn't seem to tie up with somebody who would burn a house down. Um, and I think we were just so keen on trying to find where we were going to live. We had two small children. The fire service had said there wasn't any obvious evidence of arson. I think we assumed the police had knew about it and... We just let it go, I guess. But yes, in hindsight, it was a foolish, very foolish decision. OK, but then now we get this was in June, the middle of June. We get to July and the car tyres of your car are, are slashed uh, when you're at a, attending a, a, a nursery ceremony. That's or, correct. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, so we um, had had an invitation. My daughter was finishing nursery. She was going to school that September. And at the end of nursery, they have a sort of a a party or celebration, I guess, that they finish as nursery. So we'd had a letter to invite us to this celebration. um, And it was at a different nursery. We went to attend it. We came out and my car tyre was slashed. There was a lot of cars there. No other tyres were slashed whatsoever. Um, it was odd because it was a place that we had never been. There was no, um, we had no attachment to it. It was somewhere we'd never been before. So again, we thought this is very strange. I suppose it could be RK, but why would he turn up here? It's not somewhere he would know that we would go. And then it started to, um, it started to dawn on me when a couple of weeks following that, I got a call from a friend who said, I've had this very strange call from a man who says that he's your accountant and he's trying to find you and Kevin um, because he doesn't have your address details since the fire. And he's trying to find you and um, he wanted my friends to give him details of where we were. All very odd. Um, She hadn't given him any details, thank goodness. And I started to think about it. And I realised that her name and phone number was written on a slip of paper in the car where the tyre was slashed. So if you were looking in the window of the car while slashing a tyre, you would be able to see her name and her phone number. Her, My accountant's details were on a letter that I'd received from him that I'd put in the recycling box. The invitation to the nursery ceremony was on a piece of paper that I'd put in the recycling box prior to going on holiday. So all the information that had been used to make the coil and to find out where we were was all in those recycling boxes. So then it started to make sense uh, that whoever had stolen the recycling boxes was then using the information from that to find out where we were, had gone to the nursery ceremony, slashed the tyres, seen my friend's details, called her using my accountant's details from a letter to uh, try and find out where we are. Unfortunately, well, unfortunately for him, fortunately for us, he used his home phone number 
to call my friend. So the call was traceable and uh, it was traced back to RK's house. And also your husband at this stage, or a very short while later, a day or two later, sees him on your road and follows him. And um, I think either your, I think your husband takes some photos of him. Yes, we saw him on the roundabout of coming down our road and he was managed to take some photographs. It just puts the the van in a certain place at a certain time. And the roundabout near our house has a travel lodge on it and also a number of large buildings who have CCTV. So the picture on my husband's phone could be corroborated with the CCTV evidence from these buildings. Um, so it was we were able to to get start to get some evidence that he was breaching his restraining order. So we went to the police and we put all of this to them. And we said, this is all very odd, but this is what we think is happening. He's now started to breach his restraining order. And then they, without us knowing, actually, I think that they felt that it was probably best that we didn't know. They started to sort of trail him as well and found that he was driving up and down our road. And they, they eventually came up with seven or eight breaches of restraining order, the one or two by my husband, but also quite a number where they had followed him down our road as well. And the next incident was that the builders who were destroying or clearing out the inside of our property came in one day to find that the water pipe on the ground floor had been cut. So the ground floor had, was flooded and also that somebody had been trying to turn the gas on on the outside tap. Luckily, it had been all turned off at the mains, so it wasn't leaking gas everywhere, but it could have been incredibly dangerous had it been when a builder had turned up, lit, lit up a cigarette, the whole place could have gone up. Um, when that happened, we again called the police. They felt that the threat was high if it was RK indeed that did these things. And they arrested him outside our house driving down our road. They also find another piece of evidence of um, a piece of paper handwritten with lots of details that suggest uh, all the previous incidents have been down to him or most of them. Yes, it had. It was a list. It was handwritten um, and it had the detail, my accountant's details written on it. It had the nursery ceremony date and place. It had my friend's name and phone number. And at the bottom of the list was the date of the fire. OK, so um, he gets remanded in custody and um, his house gets searched and things get found. Um, again, it was computer um, evidence. Again, he'd been Googling me an awful lot. Um, some recycling boxes with Cheltenham County Council on it were found in a lockup belonging to him. Um, and yes, those things were found. I'm trying to remember if, what else was found. But there was also a um, chat room forum discussion that he entered and asked a particularly ominous question yes he'd been on chat rooms and i've been asking the question how long after somebody disappears are they classified as being dead right so then you got a recommendation from the police is that right yes well we were involved with the cps and the police at that point i've been meeting up with some of the cps lawyers because at that point um they decided to go ahead with charging him for the breaches of restraining order and some of the um criminal damage and at that point, they felt that they needed to advise that we needed to think very seriously about my changing my name, coming off the General Medical Council register, and also not coming back to our house when it had been rebuilt and moving elsewhere. But I find that advice astonishing. I mean, what, why is it that you're meant to completely change your life? I mean, if you were to come off the General Medical Council register, are they suggesting that you stop practicing as a doctor and you have to change your name and move address. I find that astonishing advice. Yes. And, and, you know, we were very much of the opinion, well, why should we at the time? But I think it wasn't a, yes, you have to do this. It was a, 
look, things are escalating. I think they weren't sure at that point what sort of outcome they were going to get in court. It was just at the sort of time that stalking was starting to be made a law. But really, prior to that, it had just been harassment. Um, they knew the penalties were low. They weren't, they weren't convinced about what result we were going to get. And so they did put it to us as, you may need to do this to protect yourself because we can only go so far to protect you. And I think they, they felt very hand-tied as well. I think they, they, they would have liked to have put him away forever or, or do something much more substantial to be able to protect us. But I think they felt that they had to say, look, we feel that this threat is escalating and that you may need to take quite drastic action. Mm, not very reassuring to you, though, that they gave that advice. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It was, it was frightening, incredibly okay. frightening. Yeah. Yes. If we get to May 2013 and he's sentenced in Crown Court to three years and eight months for breaches of the restraining order, mm. uh, causing undue stress and anxiety and criminal damage to the car. Mm. Um, and there's one count of criminal damage to the house and one count of theft of recycling boxes. Mm. Is that right? Yes, that's right. He only ended up, he didn't end up pleading guilty to the criminal damage to the house or the theft of the recycling boxes. Um, and uh, we were going to trial and he decided to plead guilty to all the rest of them about 10 minutes before we went to court. So um, obviously to get a lesser sentence. So uh, we went with that at the time because actually there, there probably wasn't enough hard enough evidence that we would have been able to char- to convict him for the other two. But there's a new restraining order and he's banned from the county that you live in for yes. the rest of his life. Yes. That's correct. Um, his his defence also said at that um, trial then that he needed to have a psychiatric, a proper psychiatric assessment. And the plan was, therefore, that he would go to as an inpatient to the local um, psychiatric unit at the hospital and he'd be kept there for as long as necessary. It was again, it was rather open ended. It was, well, if he, he stays there until he's in inverted commas, treated and then goes to finish his sentence in prison or they keep him for as long if, if he's not able to be treated. Again, they sent him to prison. It was it was very woolly. It wasn't very clear. We had hoped that if he wasn't able to be treated, then potentially they could keep him under the Mental Health Act because of the threat that she posed. Um, but in the end, he spent about a year in the psychiatric unit and he came out from there and spent four weeks in prison and then was released. Now, he's had several psychiatric assessments, you think. But the other thing that I'm finding very puzzling about your case is that none of the psychiatrists who are meant to be assessing him seem to have talked to you about what your experience was. And I find that very odd. Yes, I think the the first few psychiatric assessments he'd had were by the, an on-call psychiatrist associated with the police when he was arrested to assess whether he was capable of standing in court and pleading guilty or not guilty it was a very basic assessment is this person logical or sane enough I suppose to be able to plead guilty or not guilty Uh, on every occasion he was found yes that he he could plead uh, and he knew what he was doing so those are the only assessments he'd had previously Um, but yes during the whole year that he was in the psychiatric unit I was never approached um, or never given any details about what treatment if any he had or anything that he'd said about me or or any of the details of his case at all 
Um, now, around this time as well, you decided to pursue a civil claim because you felt you'd lost um, lots of money, lots of potential to earn because of all of all the stress you'd been under. You, you'd gone off sick from work because of stress. Yes, I had gone off sick from work. I got sick pay from my regular salary job, but I also undertake quite a lot of locum work um, and I hadn't been able to do that. And that's obviously not covered by sick pay. Um, so I had lost a considerable amount of money. But actually, the reason that we did it was that we felt this was our opportunity to try and take a more active role. For the whole number of years pre- prior to that, we had been waiting for him to act, and then we had to react to it. It's a very unsettling feeling. It makes you feel very out of control, and it gives the perpetrator the power. And obviously, that's part of what he wanted. So we felt that this, the, this was our opportunity to try and do everything that we could so that when he got out, he wouldn't reoffend. And one of the ideas that we had was if we took him to civil court, we could get a civil injunction that was equal to the restraining order. And therefore, if he did reoffend, we could not only take him back to criminal court, but we could also take him to civil court. And that's much more based on balance of probability rather than definitive evidence, so that there would be more chance of potentially punishing him for reoffending in civil court so it was to try and give us as many tools as we possibly could to one to prevent him reoffending, and two to get him back in prison if he did reoffend once he came out and three to have some impact on his family because up until now his family had felt that I was victimizing him that the police were victimizing him that he was a pillar of the community and he'd done nothing wrong And we were hoping that by trying to involve his family a bit more, by taking them to civil court, um, they might be able to, they might step in and try and prevent him behaving in this way as well. So what happened? Well, we went to civil court. It took us quite a long time because these things do and they send lots of letters and they try and encourage the the person that you're suing to get solicitor and get advice and, and, and then it can be all settled out of court and sorted out like that. But he refused to engage at any point. Um, so when we went to civil court, which is actually probably about a year, 18 months later, I think by the dates, um, when he had been, he'd been, he went to prison the following time. That wasn't while he was in prison or the psychiatric unit this time. It actually happened the next time the civil judge, um, said that he had caused undue mental stress, that on balance of probability, he had caused the house fire, um, by the evidence that he had in front of him. And so that he was forced to pay charges and also compensation. Now, getting any of that is not the idea in the end. At the end of the day, we got an injunction against him. We can take him back to civil court if he reoffends at any point. Um, from the money side of things, the solicitors handle it. I don't know that we'd ever see any money um, because obviously it depends on his assets, how much his wife uh, has in conjunction with him, whether the house is in his name and her name, all of that kind of thing. That, but that, at the end of the day, is not the point. If we don't see any money, we don't see any money. That was never the, the intention, really. But the stress had been such that you felt close to um, believing that you would never work as a doctor again. Yes, and part of the civil case was uh, I had to go and see a psychiatrist at that point um, to assess the mental damage So as part of the civil case. Um, and yes, I was off work at that point. And um, general practice is you're very vulnerable. You sit in an office all by yourself. 30 to 40 people come in that door every single day. Any of them could come in, say anything, do anything. And you have no, it's your word against theirs. And the vulnerability of that situation became too much. I, I couldn't stop 
imagining, I suppose, the threat of somebody else coming in and behaving, not necessarily in the same way, but in a threatening behaviour towards me. And I didn't really have the strength to cope with that. And also, it's very difficult to do general practice if you're not 100% there in the moment with the patient which is what they deserve they come into the surgery they, they expect you to be able to to be there 100 and with this all going on in the background it was actually extremely difficult to focus as well as looking after a family etc etc became very difficult so yes i did have periods off work um now it's around this time um we get to around December 2014. He'd remained in a bail hostel and had a day's leave to visit his wife in Bristol. But then he did something else. He came, it seems like, looking for you. Yes. So he had the year in the psychiatric unit. He came out and had four weeks in prison. And then he came out and went straight to a bail hostel on the south coast. Um, he had a curfew and he was fairly quickly, sorry, he was fairly well monitored, closely monitored by the people there. And they did a very good job. And then he requested to have a day's leave to go and visit his wife, um, meet up with his wife in Bristol. Um, and it appears that he hired a car um, and he drove into Gloucestershire. So he breached his restraining order and he sent two letters, one to my workplace and one to my home. The one to my workplace um, was basically a, a rant um, threatening my family so it said I know where your children go to school I know where your husband goes to work we want you to leave Gloucestershire go back to where you come from various other quite unpleasant things the letter he sent to my home address had three pieces of paper in it the first one said do as in d-o-h second one said I'm back sorry it said guess who's back and the third one said I'm back and that was all that was in the envelope uh, I was actually in London that day I was coming home on the coach and I had a call from work to say we've received this letter. Um, it was going to be several hours before I got home. I rang my husband. He rang my work, suddenly realised that a letter had arrived for me at home that morning. I hadn't been there. He came home, took the letter to the police immediately um, without getting any other fingerprints on it. Um, they managed to fingerprint it and find our case fingerprints on it. So he was arrested? Yes, he was arrested straight away after that. And this is around this time that your case begins to get some publicity. Um, yes, it did, because um, we st there was quite a lot of local publicity at the time. And um, the when it came up to trial again, um, there was started to be some national press coverage as well. They picked up on the story. Um, and he was sentenced to how long? He was sentenced to five years. Um, so he serves two and a half years in prison um, and potentially the rest of his sentence will be tagged. So he will be out of prison, but he will have a tag. Um, but you're concerned about what happens um, when this sentence is over. Yes, because his pattern of behaviour is such that he has a delusional belief about me that we have had a relationship. He has alleged to people that my child is his. Um, and he has also said that the more things he does to me, the more I will realise that I wish to be with him. Now, that belief system, as far as I'm aware, has not changed. And it's led him to reoffend every time he's finished every, any punishment that's been thrown at him prior, previously. So any um, prison stay and restraining order, he has not obeyed any restraining order and he has reoffended every time he's come out of prison. So there is no reason for me to believe that he won't do exactly the same when he comes out of prison next time. He's not had any more treatment. He's not been, uh, not had his belief system changed in any way. So why wouldn't he? 
feels to me as though you've been the victim of of, of multiple failures of different services. Um, what 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 do you feel, and what do you think um, needs to change so that your people like you and, and and you in particular are more protected in future from this kind of incident? It's very frustrating. Um, I. I feel that the law has tried to do as much as it can um, within the boundaries that it has. And certainly the judge at the uh, court last year in May was very frustrated by the penalty that he could impose upon RK of five years. He really felt that it, the punishment didn't fit the crime and that if he had been able to, he would have increased the penalty um, for him. So since that point, um, and this is when far more of the, the media attention has come about, is um, I've been campaigning with my local MPs to try and increase the maximum penalty for stalking from five years to 10 years. Um, at the moment, it is the only way that I can be safe is when he is in prison. As soon as he comes out of prison, I will not be safe and I'll be looking over my shoulder again all the time and suffering the paranoia and anxiety um, that I've had in the past, which has been overwhelming at times. Um, so at the moment, the only way I can keep me and my family safe is for keeping him in prison longer. Now, obviously, hopefully, at some point, there may be some guidelines about treatment or rehabilitation for these offenders. Um, it, they're serial offenders, similar to sort of sex offenders, and we're also looking for a serial offender list for stalkers because their behaviour mimics this in some way. And for there to be a positive they have to positively be trying to change when they come out of prison to prove that they're trying to um, stop their behaviour. So I'm involved in quite a lot of campaigns with this just to try and feel that if he does reoffend when he comes out at the next next year, that maybe we'll get 10 years for him instead of five and that something can be put into place while he's in prison to stop him behaving in this way. And hopefully that then that can be rolled out for other people as well, because I'm clearly not the only person in this position. I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of family support. I have a lot of friends support. Um, I, I have my community behind me um, because of the job I do. And so I, I have a voice to speak about it. But a lot of women in my position are on their own. It's often relationship related. So um, they're single parents and this is a relationship that's gone horribly wrong and they're on their own. And I can't imagine how frightening and terrifying it must be for them. So I'm trying to do all of this work while I'm safe in order to make things a bit better in the future. What about the medical aspect? Um, doctors, statistically speaking, are more likely to be stalked uh, than members of the general public. Um, it's my understanding of the research literature. Um, is, there, is there a failing within the medical profession in terms of its ability to look after its members as well? Um, I think the problem is, is I think it is, it is common for, particularly for women patients, to develop... Um, delusions of love if that's what you want to call it with a male gp that seems to be much more common than the other way around um but it's not i don't know the statistics of how many of these cases actually go on to become stalking in inverted commas as in how many cases the the person who is doing the um, stalking or has the obsession continues despite everything that the law throws at them i don't know how common that is um and i don't know and this is a good point of whether the medical profession keeps any statistics on this at all. And I think it would be an area that would be very interesting to look into. Um, I think in our day-to-day -day practice, most of us are quite used to people being flirtatious with us or uh, making comments because 
purely because we see so many people and because we're in a, a relationship of trust. People come to us with their innermost thoughts, embarrassing thoughts, and they develop a relationship with us, a doctor-patient relationship with us, and an awful lot of them consider us to be their friends. Um, it's a line we have to draw very carefully, and as doctors, we mustn't overstep that line. But I think a lot of patients regard their doctor as somebody that they have a very close relationship with, and therefore it puts us to be much more vulnerable. But as far as I'm aware, there's not been any research as to how often this has happened to GPs. I want to ask you a very difficult question. I want to take you back to what what point in in this incredible story that you've told us what was your lowest point can you tell us a bit about that and why was that your lowest point and how did it feel i think the lowest point was when he'd been in the psychiatric unit for a year he then came out into prison for four weeks and then he was released now for about the month to two months prior to his release we had a huge amount of involvement with um probation with um the police, various organisations to try and put a safety plan into place. Um, We were looking at having a steel door on one of the rooms in our house, so we had a safe room. We had to go into my children's school and talk to the teachers, um, put a plan into place if I was being followed home, what I needed to do to ring the school to get them to keep the children safe, etc., etc. It went on for a number of weeks and it was extremely intense. And the anxiety of the threat built up to such a point that a few weeks after he was released, I was in absolute bits. I couldn't go to work. I couldn't look after my family. Um, I was uh, I was hiding at home. I couldn't leave my house. Um, it was extremely difficult to cope with. And my anxiety became so overwhelming that I couldn't actually think about anything else at all. Um, and I think that was probably my lowest point. And it was at that point that I thought I'm going to have to seek some sort of intensive therapy, um, which I did. And it's the only reason I believe that I was able to go back to work. Um, or even actually function as a normal human being. I feel like I would have been in an institution myself had that feeling continued because it is like, it's very difficult to describe, it is like, it felt like I was going into a viva at medical school every second of every day. Um, intense, intense anxiety um, and unable to get at, get rid of it or, or think straight. If anyone is listening to this who is going through a similar experience to yours, um, do you have any advice for them? Um, yes, don't think. I think it's very easy for us to underestimate what somebody is doing to us. You think, well, they're only, they haven't assaulted me. They haven't come up to me with a knife. Nobody's trying to kill me. Um, and you, you start to think that what they're doing is very insignificant, but it's not. It's not. If this goes on for more than two weeks, somebody is trying to contact you or trying to um it was behaving in an abnormal way to you then this is very very significant and I think the my advice is not to underestimate what they're doing and if you're at all worried about people's behavior then you must be talking to the police but also that there is a large number of charities that are really really good at helping to advise particularly um paladin the national stalking advocacy um service which helped me an awful lot and they do make you realize that you're not on your own and also tell you where to go next who to contact how to deal with it how to keep yourself safe and give you loads an awful lot more information and there are lots of other charities as well absolutely um, the Susie Lambert yeah. trust is, is one that I, I have been uh, linked with myself um but there, there there are lots of charities in this area um and, and it's well worth making contact with at least one of them Absolutely. Um, protection against stalking. Um, there's, 
I'm really pleased that there's so much more out there than there was. I didn't get in contact with anybody really until about the past year, two years, I suppose. Um, and it would have been so much more helpful had I got into contact at the beginning. But I wasn't signposted to anybody. The police weren't aware of anybody that I could be signposted to. I think they're much better now. Um, but it's really important to get in touch with somebody, uh, one of these charities, because they can be incredibly helpful. Eleanor, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.